Hey everyone, this is Sean from Image Comics, back with another episode of Mirror Image. In this series, image creators chat with folks from film, music, prose, podcast, and beyond about their shared passions and processes. It's a new venue for creators to reflect on the things they love. In this episode, we have something truly special. Jim Rugg in conversation with Jeff Smith. As I'm sure you know, Jim Rugg is the cartoonist behind the Street Angel series, co-written by Brian Maruka. The titular Street Angel is Jesse Sanchez, a streetwise scamp with incredible ninja and skateboarding skills. Hilarious, kinetic, and absolutely unique, Street Angel can be discovered through a series of European-style original graphic novels, including Street Angel, Superhero for a Day, Street Angel Goes to Juvie, and released just last November, Street Angel vs. Ninja Tech. Rugg is a master cartoonist at home with any style and medium, of which he furiously mixes and matches throughout the series. Jeff Smith is a pioneering creator who's changed the landscape of comics. First with Bone, his fantasy and comedy hybrid about three cousins tripping into a magical valley besieged by evil forces. He shifted genres in 2013 for Rassel, a sci-fi noir about a dimension-hopping art thief. Jeff is also the co-founder and artistic director of Cartoon Crossroads Columbus, an annual celebration of all things cartooning and comics in Columbus, Ohio. His recent works include Tukey Save the Humans and Smiley's Dream Book. Recorded last year, Jim and Jeff have a truly special chat that spans from process to marketing to format and the evolution of the medium. It's a perfect deep dive for anyone looking to learn from two of the most accomplished creators in the field. An epic thanks to the band Parents with a Z for providing the music. Check out parents.bandcamp.com so, uh, for more. I'm doing good, Jeff. How are you? <laughs> not bad, not bad. You still in Pittsburgh? I am. Yeah. It's funny. I didn't realize you were in Florida. I actually considered contacting you to come out to Columbus for this. <laughs> oh, that would have been fun. Because it's always easier, I think, to talk in person. Um, but that wouldn't have worked. No, that not this time. But um, yeah, so I recently got a package from Image that had your three Street Angel hardcovers in it. So how long has that all been in the works? I don't, I don't mean back to 2003, but like. Just, <laughs> Let me start at the beginning. These, yeah. <laughs> I was born. <laughs> um, it was a few years ago. We had put together a collection of the old Street Angel stuff with Ad House Books in 2014 or 2015. And then I went to San Diego and that's where I talked to Eric Stevenson about, you know, doing doing something with Image. And Street Angel was one of the uh, ideas that we talked about. And so. Yeah, probably around 2015, I started working on it, um, you know, kind of in the background and, and clearing out my schedule and working on it more and more as I could. And then, you know, just getting ahead. And it changed a lot because it started out as, you know, it was going to be a, a comic books, but the comic books I was making, they were all designed. This is going to this is going to be kind of different than a, than your approach to bone. <laughs> That's all <laughs> right. Graphic novel movement that, that you know, you're a big part of. Um my idea was to do these comic books that would completely stand alone because I always think it's it can be hard to find independent comics. Uh, yeah. You know, you might hear about a, a cool new series, but you go to the store and you find issue four, you know, and it's part of a longer right. story. and it's, it's not always ideal. And I like short stories. I have a short attention span and I like to do a lot of different things and work with different materials. So Street Angel developed that way where it was like, I'm going to do a lot of these well, I'm going to do short stories that stand alone and each one is going to be different. And as I started turning those in, you know, we were seeing so many different formats that other other people were using, um, you know, some that looked like picture books, uh, 
you know, different length graphic novels, things designed to get into libraries and to stay on shelves longer. And it seemed like the Street Angel stories I was making fit that format really well. And, and what um, would you call this format? Is this uh, sort of with like European album size, which isn't quite accurate, but that's a huge, that's a great description for it. You know, I mean, I, we call them graphic novels just because that's the what language in comics yeah. is a yeah. little limited, but the European album format is really good. Um, you know, as, as an example. So yeah, that's, that's a pretty good description for it. And you, uh, like I f first came across street angel when we were working with you for, uh, CXE for the poster for a cartoon crossroads Columbus. You were, did our, our second poster. Right. Or was, or was that our first poster? Uh, it was probably the second <laughs> I think it was year two. I, I think it was the second one, and we and you uh, you we you used Street Angel on the poster, and I was like, I just love the character. And then you showed me some of the comics, and one of the things that, one of the things I wondered about was, you can draw any way you want. Like you can draw anything. You could draw <laughs> wow, like thanks. Neil Adams if you wanted, or Will Eisner, or Harvey Kurtzman. So. Why did you pick the style you did for this, which has a kind of amateurish look? And I don't mean that in an insulting way. I think you're going for that a little bit with uh, obviously all the movement is really perfect as far as panel to panel. But you could draw this like Kyle Baker. How come you draw it like this? Let's explain that to me. <laughs> and I hope I'm, I hope I'm not being insulting. I'm not trying to be. I hope I'm explaining. This myself. is uh, no, no. That's that's good. Um, you know, I I just I look at a lot of stuff, Jeff. I look at stuff all the time. Um, you know, outside of comics, things like I started looking at picture books a lot in the last five or six years, and they became a really big influence. And if you look at picture books, the art styles, the illustration styles are are very broad. You know, and and some of them are simple. Um, which I, I would say is, you know, maybe what you're describing in the street angel books. Um, and it just, I just found it very appealing, uh, you know, and, and there's not much more to it than that. It was just a matter of everything I was looking at. That was something that started to kind of speak to me. And I think some of it is like animation also, you know, you think of animation as being a simpler drawing style usually than, than a traditional comic book. But I find that simplicity beautiful, you know, and I find it very easy to read. And comic books are so strange. I remember growing up when Image first formed, like all those guys were my favorite cartoonists at the time. Sure. But if I showed that stuff to somebody, like if I showed that to my art teacher or my parents, they just looked at it like, what is this? You know, it's like cross hatching mm -hmm. on the face and yeah. <laughs> things that made sense to a comic book reader, but looked kind of strange outside of that you know if you weren't in that context and so i think just as i've you know looked at more illustration um you know different things have spoken to me and i think comics illustration as a whole in the last man 10 or 15 years have really just gone in every direction imaginable that's so, true for sure yeah it's, okay. it's probably a reflection of just lots of different influences cool that's excellent and I mean, you know, your art's a big influence on that direction as well, because I found your stuff early on, like when I started reading comics and Image started, that's about when I came in contact with Bone. And what you were doing, you know, was completely different than 
anything else I was seeing and anything else I was reading at the time. <laughs> Definitely different than what was in Image Comics, except I was in Image Comics for a while. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all right. They were they were great guys. They were really fun. I liked their attitude. They were iconoclasts. And um, we had a lot more in common than we than things that we, were, we thought, thought differently about. They were just giant self-publishers out to just control their own destiny and own their own copyright. So I thought that was pretty cool. That was a big, that was probably, you know, besides, you know, being interested in their artwork, that was probably when I started to think about creator ownership, you know, because they were talking about it, wanting to own their own work. And I know other, other creators have talked about that long before image was anybody's idea. But for me as a reader at the time, that was probably whenever it really started to, I always say like I changed my dream from wanting to be a comic book artist, you know, drawing Wolverine or something to wanting to draw my own characters when image right. started. So, you well, know, that, for that. I'm sure there was a, a lot of people. That. That. Yeah, I think that was, well, they were incredibly uh, popular and successful. I mean, they were, they were the news headlines. <laughs> they, and, and that was a good message for them to, to Johnny Appleseed around the nation's young artists. One of the things, you know, like like getting ready to talk to you, I've been reading some interviews with you and looking at different stuff, and you talk about researching comics in the 80s. So how did, you know, what were you looking at or thinking about that led you to self-publishing? Well, I wanted to do a comic strip, you know, like Calvin and Hobbes or something. In fact, I was, I was trying to sell Bone around the same time in the early 80s that uh, Waterston was trying to sell Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I was unable to, to find a syndicate that was interested and somewhere in like, it was 1986 because it was Frank Miller's Dark Knight books got written up in like, you know, the New York Sunday magazine and somebody showed it to me and I thought, oh, well, that's a strange thing to hear it read about a comic. It's not so strange nowadays, 30 years or 40 years later, but uh, it was very strange back then. I found a comic book shop. And bought, you know, the first two issues of The Dark Knight Returns. But I also discovered, you know, Love and Rockets. I saw uh, Hate and Eight Ball and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Tick. And there are all these like as Cerebus. And I, I, I thought, this is interesting. And I actually did enjoy The Dark Knight. I really thought that was an amazing uh, step forward in superhero comics anyway but what i really got out of that trip was taking home all these black and white books that were you know published by very small publishers or self-published and the quality the, the cartooning power on display there with i mean the hernandez brothers for god's sakes peter bag and dan Klaus and uh, dave sim and gerhard i mean th th i was like this is like this is like the almost like the golden age of newspaper comics except nobody knows about it because it's in it's in these little <laughs> little uh you know uh, hobby shops so that was what got me into it right there because i couldn't i was i was giving up on trying to sell it to a syndicate as a newspaper strip and here i saw all these examples of people with far more talent than anybody doing newspaper comic strips uh, doing these books and suddenly I wanted to be there. That's where I wanted to go. And um, 
that's what I meant by researching the comics. I mean, I just looked at what was on the shelves at that time and it was pretty impressive. Yeah. That's a, that's a lot of what I still read are comics from that era. Um, <laughs> Good. I, I get it. Cause I, I love, I love, you know, like back issue diving and it seems like a lot of comic stores, you know, you can always find those quarter boxes or, or dollar boxes or whatever. And so much of it is from that era, you know, from, I guess it's the black and white explosion of the, late 80s into that mm -hmm. 90s bubble and, and glut of the early 90s right. and a lot of it isn't as good as the examples you cited but it still paints that picture you know like i find that stuff empowering because a lot of it is self-published and it's maybe one or two people creating the whole book and you get yeah. that sense of like it's it's kind of exactly what i'm still doing you know distribution might be a little bit different now and readership's different or whatever and the tools to make it are different but the concept's still the same. You know, it's that ability for a, a, one or two people to make essentially a complete visual story. And I find a lot of uh, inspiration from some of those, some of those kind of outcast comics of, of that era. Well, yeah, and it, it was the idea of the cartoonists as authors instead of just being, um, you know, people coming in punching a clock and inking. Spider-Man and somebody else drew it. Somebody else is going to color it and letter it and all that stuff. Uh, I always felt like that was, that was kind of the main point and things have changed. I mean, like you said, you're trying to do standalone comics. Well, when I was doing it, they were mostly standalone comics, you know, I mean, I guess Cerebus wasn't, but I never really could follow that anyway. <laughs> uh, and even Love and Rockets has, they were kind of standalone, but they were the whole thing kind of built and and had a had a coherence. Which you're doing something like that with Street Angel. I mean, I only have these three books so far, but her world is Jesse's world is growing. Superheroes are starting to show up. <laughs> I try to do as much, uh, you know, making the world feel bigger than it is. Uh, you know, even using like end papers to describe other characters or to, to describe that world. Um, you know, I just think of it as like, <laughs> use every, every part of the Buffalo, so to speak. Um, you know, yeah, every you do a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of extra little goodies to keep you busy for hours. Just looking at little things that almost look like bubblegum cards or, <laughs> right. Or menus, or I don't know what, there's all sorts of crazy stuff. Where did you start that? Um, I've seen you do this in other magazines or other pieces you've done where you mimic the print look of like a different era uh, and, and, in the, and in some of these street angel end papers, it's not so much a, a different era, but you'll make it look like, you know, the inside of a kid's textbook where they scribble and write on it. And all that. But it really looks like it. Like it looked, the paper looks like it has smudges and you use different pens and stuff. Where did that all start? Well, you know, like I learned to draw from emulating other things and I just would look very, very closely at those other things. And then this is something that I'm interested in to get kind of your experience with this too. When I started, I was doing black and white comics because, you know, as a small publisher or self-publisher, that's all you could really afford to do. And right. then it transitions to where like color printing is suddenly available and, you know, with digital output, what you can do is you know, huge. So I did a book called Aphrodisiac and it was where I tried to figure out how to color. And a lot of it was, um, like a period comic set in the seventies. So yeah. I didn't like a lot of the digital computer color that I saw. It felt airbrushed and fake and perfect. And 
I, it didn't appeal to me the way other comics, like older comics did. And so whenever I did Aphrodisiac, I basically learned how to color and how color printing worked. And so I was emulating these old processes where I was laying in like, you know, like I would go into CMYK, like I would have a layer of each that represented that ink color. And I would go in and work on those layers, uh, you know, the same way that it would have been are done. You, before are digital. you shitting me? Are you kidding? Wait, oh, it's so you. You like <laughs> digitally, you actually recreated the four color process. I mean, kind of it's that way anyway, except that you don't need to be aware of it anymore. Right. It does it itself. It it divides it up into the four colors. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 old enough that you would the very first color things I ever did, I had to actually make four different layers. Right. I mean, there's the black and white line art, and then you do a overlay with ruby lift that and bend a dots. This is what's going to be on the you know, the cyan layer or whatever. Yeah, that's that's what I was doing, and it was kind of this painful process to do that digitally, but I learned so much about, you know, color and, and how to build color. And I think it served me well, but that's where a lot of that stuff comes from, you know, yeah, and but, I would, uh, but it actually looks like it's, it's actually looks like it's on the pulp paper and that the, you know, <laughs> it really looks, it, it's really quite believable. I'm, I'm surprised you're able to even do that with digital. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because it's going to get very esoteric very quickly. Well, but that's I will what this tell talk you, like, is for, isn't it? <laughs> to, to, to get I'm some of those really effects, I would <laughs> I would print out my color separations small and then scan those printouts and put it back together because I couldn't figure out how to make the bleeding of the ink into the paper. I couldn't do that digitally. So I would that's... have to actually scan. I would act actually print it in order to get authentic ink bleeding. And, and then, then scan, scan it. it. Okay, that's exactly what I was just talking about. I was like, how the hell did you get the ink bleeding into the paper, into the fibers? Okay, I don't think that's going down the rabbit hole. That's exactly the kind of thing that's interesting. That's what I, I look at your work and I, there's a little magic. I, I, I really enjoyed aphrodisiac. So <laughs> that was cool. There's a lot of fun stuff like that in Street Angel too. Well, you know, that makes me ask about, you know, your approach to color, because you have such a traditional line, you know, it's kind of that lineage of cartooning, what we think of, what I think of as cartooning, right? Drawing in ink, but then right. your work, it looks perfect in color. It looks like it's designed for color. It's crazy to me that we all loved it in black and white, but then it works in color. You know, how difficult was it to transition from this black and white work into seeing it in color, or figuring out well, palettes for it? And, I had never done color, so when um, and I and I didn't ever plan to do color. I, I finished Bone, uh, the the whole thirteen hundred fifty pages of it in black and white, and then was approached by Scholastic to uh, reprint it in a series of books and then and in color. So the work was already done, and I had to just had to figure out a way to color what already existed, and. I, I had, I mean, my basic theory was try to use uh, color and light and dark to just highlight where the reader's supposed to put their eye. So that was pretty much it. So like you, if you see the character in the, in the scene, there's usually a light spot either around that character's feet or somewhere, you know, behind their head, you know, and that, that basically was my only trick. 
And then we would come up with some things. And I say we because, of course, Steve Hamaker uh, <coughs> was the one who bravely started off uh, the process and would create the layers and put in the original blocking. And it's his – he has a really interesting color palette that I liked. Um, but then once he got done with a page or a chapter or a scene or something, we would sit down side by side. And I, what I would do is go through each panel and say, okay – when it was in black and white, I was planning on the reader's eye jumping to this area. And if it did it by itself, then fine. I just left it be. But if it didn't, and a lot of times it didn't because Steve wasn't thinking about that. He was trying to make each panel pretty, right? I would you know, reduce color in an area where I didn't want you to look and kind of do something with the color, either brighten it up or add a little color to get you to in to the part of the frame I want you to look at. That's about the best I can tell you. Yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, and again, kind of the difference between that more assembly line approach and being able to do this as an auteur where you get to actually go in and, and kind of work closely with the colorist to achieve the results that you want. Yeah, and I think what, I think what Steve and I did on Rassel was even better. I don't, I just, I almost can't believe it. I look back on it and it was something that we did in three months, all 500 pages. We, wow. uh, well, we couldn't, I, I, I was getting to be time to like put the full wrestle out with, uh, you know, all 500 pages in one book. I thought oh, that's kind of what I like to do. And I, I, we, he, he tried a few different attempts to color some sample pages and it just wasn't really working and three months before we had to get it to the printer, he came up with this palette that is what Rassel is basically, this really smoky, dark, rich palette. And I was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And he created a kind of a blotchy texture that I, that was half like just like looked like ragged stuff or or watercolor. And he just had it very subtly in the back, which just gave things a little more texture and so that it wouldn't do that shiny digital coloring thing that people don't do as much anymore, but it was really bad in the early days of digital color. But anyway, the whole thing looked great. And then he just smashed through it and then I smashed through it. Uh, and then we had to print it on pulp paper because I didn't want it to be shiny like a comic book or like the bone books even. I wanted, and that created all sorts of crazy problems because this paper just sucked all the black ink right out of the, right out of the color. We had to just go back and nearly every single panel had to be adjusted for the way the paper sucked the ink up. You know, you That's get such a challenge the printer. Yeah. going from screen to paper. It's, um, it's something I, I constantly struggle with as well. Um, Razzle's, that coloring is so effective and it reminds me so much. It's the perfect complement to the story itself. You know, I think I've, I've seen you talk about it being influenced by like Dashiell Hammett and, you know, kind of pulp writers and noir. The and story, like that, yeah. That color really fits well to sort of support that genre, that influence um, and the tone of the story itself. Yeah, I think I thought so, too. I, I felt pretty good about it. We are actually uh, about to put it out, the color in paperback for the first time. Can't believe that we we hadn't done that, but uh, it's Brassel is self-published. We did the hardcover four years ago, and uh, this year we thought, 
wait, we let's uh, let's. It's actually the 10th anniversary of the first issue of Rassel. So we thought, let's, we're going to do three paperbacks. And they're going to come out um, July, September, and November. So go get, go do your pre ordering, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll send, I'll send you some, actually. Um, um, but they're, I think they look really nice. They look just, we use the same paper. Uh, they're a lot cheaper, but there's three of them. And, and of course, I played with it. You know, uh, there's always a little something I thought I could do better. So I went back in and I, I made a couple little little changes to the book, but nothing that really radically changes it or anything. It's hard. It's hard not to do that. <laughs> there's know, always something. Well, at some point, you, I do let it go. I mean, like Bone, I'm never going to change that again. That I changed it for 12 years. You know, I had this. I, I had this firm conviction that you, that the comic book wasn't the final version of it it would be the the graphic novels and so i would fix drawings that i that were rushed or maybe I, there was some somewhere i didn't draw enough of a background i go back in and add backgrounds and stuff and, and every time a book would go back to print like say the the second book the great cow race would go back to print i would vijaya and Kathleen, uh, who works with with us, would say, "Okay, what changes are you going to make?" And I go, "Well, there was just this one change on page forty-seven. I want to make change this one eyeball." And they were. <laughs> I had a good. I had a good team that always let me do all that. Um, and so over twelve years, I really feel like the the work, uh, just the garden, just grew over those twelve years until it was like really perfect. Um, and then when I did the final one volume collection, that was the final chance to, to make the changes. And I stopped. I'm just saying that. So it's, you don't think I'm still making changes on everything. <laughs> I, Printing I 20, go back in there. <laughs> We're on, we are on, uh, uh, the 24th printing of the one volume edition. That's amazing. Congratulations. Yes. What an achievement. Oh, thanks, man. It's crazy. Um, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about self-publishing. Obviously, with your success, you know, and partnering with Scholastic and, you know, you've done stuff with DC, you've done stuff with Image. Why do you maintain? I wonder what the value is in self-publishing for you. Hmm. Um, well, I obviously it's not like a, a an absolute because, you know, Scholastic publishes Bone and does it far better than I ever could. Although it was very important to me that the one volume and a black and white version stays in print and they weren't interested in that. So they, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> they uh, very generously let me and, and Vijaya continue to print the one volume. So we self publish that and still sell it, you know, uh, online and in big box stores and in comic book stores. So we still self publish bone in that manner and Russell you know, Scholastic wasn't going to publish it. And I was thinking about, you know, seeing if there's somebody else that wanted to publish Rassel. And I thought, well, wait a minute, I have a publishing company. Let's give it a shot. And Vijaya and Kathleen, Kathleen Glosen, who's like our production manager and basically both Vijaya's and my right-hand man, she, um, she and Vijaya really dove into, well, how do you, how are we going to distribute it, you know, not only to the comic book market, but beyond. Um, and they, they did all sorts of research on, on how to 
you know, do galley copies, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uncorrected proofs and figured out who we could send them to, got contacts. And because of Bone, we were able to get a lot more contacts than we probably would have if we were just starting out. Uh, and, you know, they, as a self-published book, they were able to debut, get Russell debut on the New York Times bestsellers graphic novels list. So I felt like we have a real, we have a real publishing company and why not, why not use it? You don't have to mess around and, um, I can make changes without getting anybody's permission <laughs> every time I go back to print. Yeah. One note that I, that I thought of in regards to self-publishing is promotion. Cause I'm very interested basically in, in how cartoonists live their life. Like what's, you know, what's a week in of a typical week of, in your production. And with you, I was thinking about, you do a lot of shows, you do a lot of speaking engagements. And I wonder some of that must be tied up to the fact that you are a publisher, you know, whether you have a, a new work that you're promoting or just business, you know, typical business that goes with being a publisher. Um, and I wonder kind of like what your work schedule is like and how you balance that creative part, but also that business part. That is a good question. And it's something that, you know, I've been juggling for 25 years or more. Um, it is partly because I'm self-published. Nobody else is going to publicize it for me. Right. And, um, it felt very lonely back in the beginning too, when you've got your little book coming out every other month on the comic book stands and, you know, the comics journal or wizard, you know, they've got their, they've got their comics that they're promoting, you know, they've got their little street gangs. That's, that's, that's their street gang. And, um, I felt, you know, I felt very lonely in the early days, just trying to get any attention, but it's slowly, you go to shows and you, you start meeting people, uh, word of mouth starts spreading. You get to meet retailers. That was a big deal. Just talking to retailers. But I think that because I was a publisher and then nobody else was going to publish, publicize it for me, I had to get out there and figure something out. And, um, the main thing I figured out was talking to retailers because that was the whole game back then. The retailers were your customers, not not the readers. The readers were the customers of the retailer, but the retailer bought your books and he couldn't return them. So you needed to go to a show and have a beer with uh, a retailer and convince him that this book is going to be good and get him excited about it and make him believe that you're going to keep putting it out and keep it up to a a certain level. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it seems like something that you're very good at. Um, You know, you had done that, the the documentary about bone. And I think of that as part of this promotion, you know, and part of this telling your story, you know, building an audience. It seems like that's something that you excel at. And, And so that's why I was wondering if it's something that you enjoy, if you see that as part of, you know, some, some positive, uh, you know, I, I hear a lot of cartoonists complain about the promotional parts and it seems like <laughs> that's something that you've done very successfully. And I just wondered about that, you know, if it was something that, that you do have a more positive, uh, outlook on. Well, I, fortunately for me, bone was something that people liked and the <laughs> way they like, well, I, you know, I don't, you, you, what I mean is, um, when I did it, when I started off doing it, I kind of thought that this little silly cartoon characters in a more realistic fantasy world was, I thought that would be totally normal. 
that seemed like the kind of thing I was reading in like heavy metal, you know, or another uh, European fantasy comics. It just didn't seem that weird to me. And all of a sudden it got out into the world and I, it was immediately made apparent to me that no, this is not a kind of comic that people make in nowadays or something like that. Um, and yet then they kind of liked it. So it was a lot easier to talk to people about a comic they liked. I found that to be true. That sounds strange. I don't know, but do you find that a lot of uh, young cartoonists seek you out now about self-publishing? Cause I feel like a lot of, I'm interested in, in your observations of differences between when you started in the early nineties versus now. But the one thing that I see a lot of is there is a lot of self-publishing now, whether it's online or some combination of online and print on demand or through crowdfunding or whatever. But it just seems like maybe we've come full circle where that self-publishing is makes more and more sense, especially to someone who's, you know, doing this themselves and operating essentially as an artist. And the self-publishing is kind of their, you know, it's part of their practice, uh, the way you've described it as part of yours. And I wonder, is that something that a lot of young cartoonists come up to you and, and want to talk about or yes well probably a lot because of cxc and i'm right there and there's and we are you know and i'm we're surrounded by you know young cartoonists and that's a good show and it, it's i know you've been there uh but it's it's we've got uh, some really good people uh like caitlin mcgurk and tom spurgeon that really know good cartoonists and stuff i really feel like it's really fun for me to walk around the floor and i'm just like i'm surrounded by really young talented energy i love that um but it is it's changed it, it maybe full circle might be the right way to say it because um when i was starting out it was you didn't do big books there weren't graphic novels i mean there were graphic novels but they were few and far between and they weren't meant to be a regular kind of a, a product, you know, you did, it, it was, uh, you, you, you didn't sell comic books the way you sold regular books. Like if you sold out of all your copies of the Lord of the Rings or Moby Dick, you know, if you're a bookstore, you restock them. Right. But back in the eighties and nineties, if you sold out of a copy of bone, you didn't restock it. it you were just relieved that you didn't get stuck with any. Right. <laughs> so when we sort of started pushing graphic novels, um, it was an effort to have our work taken more seriously and treated with a little more permanence and also have it be available forever like a real book would be. And that was a, it was a kind of a difficult argument to convince retailers of or even publishers or, or the community at large but eventually you know it, it finally took root and gosh it kind of went through the whole cycle of when i say the whole cycle i feel like uh i'm kind of like remembering you know, back then that it was all it was all a blur of making the books you know getting the books in the catalogs Going on the road, uh, there were certain big shows everybody had to go to. You used to have to go to WonderCon in Chicago and San Diego, of course, and uh, maybe Big Apple Con, and, and of course your local ones. And you, it was just all a big blur. And you kind of saw the same people, the same. You know, you saw Maggie Thompson, you saw Gary Groff, you saw 
Scott McLeod and all the retailers I used to see, you know, Jim Hanley and all these guys. I'd see, I'd see them at all the same shows. And you'd see people from D.C. and you'd get to know them. So one of the shows we would go to would be SPX, you know, which started up in sure. 90, I can't remember, 95, 96, I don't remember now. Um, and, but it was, a, it was the same kind of thing, but it was focused more on, uh, you know, more independent comics, more alternative and indie, indie comics. And there's a lot of self-publishing and self-publishing in terms of like mini comics or comics like, you know, Cerebus or Bone or graphic novels, you know, all that kind of, everybody's doing their own new graphic novels. We had boutique publishers like uh, First Second or Top Shelf. Actually, I don't know if First Second was around back then, but you know what I mean. Right. And um, that kind of took on its own life, the sh those kind of indie shows like that, uh, where you may not you might not sell that many books into the comic book stores, but you were going on the circuit and you were making you know your nut on at shows. You could at least pay your rent or have enough to pay your printing bill. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And now that was not part of my personal experience. That was something I saw the generation immediately after me um, begin to, to grow that lifestyle and that, that kind of, um, I guess, marketplace, for lack of a better word. Um, and that's still kind of where it is today. I mean, it, with another exception that, uh, there's a publishers like First Second or Top Shelf uh, are much bigger and more important than they were back in the 90s or even the early 2000s, and they're selling books into you know bookstores, not comic book stores and bookstores and online, and so the ability to have your books go out into the marketplace is very different that it used to be. But as far as like somebody's still starting out, it's going to be the same. It's you, your book, you got to get on the road. You got to find a way to get your book into some kind of distribution. Um, and that, that little first part hasn't changed. And that's really just, if you have a fire in the belly to get it done, how did you do it? Well, you know, same deal. I, I started out, you say like that second generation at uh, SPX, my first big show was SPX, I think 2000. And it was a strange time because, it, you know, Marvel had gone through bankruptcy shortly before that. And the graphic novels hadn't really, they were just beginning to trickle in, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it felt like we would joke at SPX that there was five a $5 bill that would just go from table to table where essentially we were all just trading <laughs> our mini comics with each other. Right. Um, you know, and then slowly these boutique publishers and these graphic novel publishers like for a second start to show up. I think the, you know, manga going into bookstores, those things kind of happened about the same time, yeah. you know, early 2000s. And I think that was like the comic upswing, you know, because with those publishers came things like publicity and having a New York Times bestseller uh, graphic novel list. You know, and it started to kind of expand like libraries, you know, were a big one. I remember my first SPX an older woman came by my table and we're talking a little bit and she looked atypical for what I would see at comic book shows, you know, which were mostly overweight middle-aged men. And right. I asked her about that. And she was, a, she was a librarian, 
You know, she was interested in in comics because she wanted students to read. She was a school librarian. And so she was here to see like, what's new? And, you know, does any of this fit in my library? And I just remember thinking like, wow, that's different. Because when I grew up, there, there weren't, you know, there were very limited comics choices in my library. Like I'm a big library fan. So I would look for that stuff. There wasn't much like Garfield would be the comics you would find in the library when I was growing up. Right, right, right. So I, I, I always remember that, that incident because it was just like, wow, this is different than, you know, whatever I, whatever San Diego or whatever I was thinking of when it came to like comic book shows and it felt like a sea change, but it was still several years before I, I think it started to, you know, things started to get better and people started to get advances for graphic novels and you started to see those because as we all know, it takes a long time to make graphic novels. So as people started to shift in that direction, it still was several years before that started to take off. But I remember, I remember a bunch of early imprints, you know, like (laughs) I can't, I I don't want to blame any particular company, but early efforts by, you know, Random House or Hot Mifflin or whatever, Mm -hmm. they would, they would like launch a very, um, kind of an optimistic uh, line of books and expect cartoonists to put out a book like every six months. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> you can write a book maybe in six months. I mean, that'd probably be tough. But yeah, there's no way. And I remember some of those early early attempts, which were so exciting to see uh, a graphic novel imprint at a big major you know, publishing house. But then they just kind of petered out that, that, that first round right there and like right there in the early 2000s, that same period. But then it it recovered. It definitely recovered. You've always sort of had that vision of graphic novels as a way to keep this work outside, not not limited to the new comic book wall, but to have something that's in print and available and in libraries. I feel like that vision has come to pass, like, you know. Now my library is awesome, their graphic novel collection. You know, this this I vision know. that you had in 1991, it's amazing. Maybe it's even better than what you hoped for. What do you, you know, do you have things now that you look at the comics landscape and think like, here's what we need to do next? Or here's what, you know, what's what's a dream at this point for what comics can be uh, going wow. forward? Um, yeah, everything I was picturing and trying to do and did actually slowly come to pass it, it's kind of amazing i <laughs> don't know where else to go from here <laughs> i mean i mean it's, it's astonishing to me that it's in libraries it's astonishing to me that young women uh will decide to come to a comic book show with their girlfriends that was unthinkable in the 90s <laughs> um yeah that that you you couldn't even sell them on Amazon at first because they Amazon had a rule against self-published books and against comics. Just slowly moving through each of these uh, barriers has just been astonishing. I'd like to get the New York Times list back. That yeah. bums that bugs me that that disappeared. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but yeah, I I don't know. I, I've never heard any reason for why that went away. Um, and, and you're definitely not alone. I've seen some petitions and stuff going around recently of people trying to have that added again. So hopefully yeah. that will come back. I hope so too. No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased with uh, how normalized comics and graphic novels have become. And part of it is graphic novels, part of it's manga, part of it's, you know, the superhero movies. It's, it's just been this very 
excellent storm, a perfect storm for comics. And I'm really glad I was right there. Yeah, it's a good good time to be a comics reader. You talk about the 80s being like an amazing time for comic books. I always think now, like, it's it's incredible. Like, it's beyond my imagination. I, I, I had one, oh, one about, thing. Yeah, how about reprints? How about reprints? That's Holy what I crap. Dude, I, I have, I have every, there's, IDW <laughs> has reprinted every Terry and the Pirates. Yes. I have every Terry and the Pirates on my bookshelf. They're reprinting all of Pogo now, Fanographics is. I, I, can't, I used to have dreams about being able to read every Pogo strip in order. <laughs> They're doing it. I mean, my God, Crazy Cat. You can have all of Crazy Cat. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, you had mentioned manga. And it's, so <laughs> it's like it's not just reprints of like old comic strips. It's also like the best comics from all around the world are now accessible. Yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it's incredible as a fan. Um, you know, I was wondering, like like looking at your lifestyle from the outside, I wonder about obsession and if it's a if that's ever been a problem with comics, because like my wife is not involved in comics and is not a particular uh, comics reader. Um, so, you know, I kind of shut it off at some point in my day and, 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 you know, get away from comics a little bit. Uh, not very much though. Cause usually that's what I'm reading at night. When I'm not working on them. But I yeah, wonder, you're, like, you're not a fool. For, you're not a fool in anybody, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> As you're I'm surrounded obsessed. by piles of comics and like everywhere I look in, in this room. Um, but, but is that something that, that, you know, do you have friends that aren't in comics? Yeah, most of my friends are not in comics. Um, I mean, I have a lot of friends that are in comics, but uh, most of my friends that are just, you know, that we go out to dinner with, they're, they're people we've met, you know, out at restaurants or we joined a wine club and we have like a group of six or seven wine friends that we've been very tight with for like 20 years. We even traveled to... Europe and France together with them. They've all gotten married and they know I do comics. I don't know if any of them have actually read any of my comics, but they've gotten married over the years and the kids read them. <laughs> uh, Vijay does like comics um, and she is my full-time business partner. So she is immersed from a slightly different angle. She's constantly worried about, you know, print runs and making sure that comics are where they're supposed to be. And, in warehouses and um, dealing with lawyers, but uh, but she still reads my comics. And with CXC, uh, she's she's on the board of the festival, and she reads every single cartoonist that comes. If we can, if she can get a copy of the book, she reads them all. I try to read them all, but I don't. She reads them all. So, um, but then at night, we have a rule like clean your desk. You have to put everything away and walk away from it. And then night happens and we have non-comics time. Yeah, that's that's I, I like hearing the rule. I feel like there's a rule. That, that's something that I've learned um, whenever I, I quit my day job. Geez, it's been over 10 years now. And it was such an adjustment of trying to figure out like, oh, thank you. <laughs> but, but trying to figure out like how those boundaries work and, you know, how do I build a schedule and it's it's interesting to me to talk to other people that do this and hear these kind of rules, you know, clean your desk. Um, 
I talked to Jillian Tamaki at SPX this year, you know, great cartoonist. I'm a huge fan of, and I was oh, asking I'm her that her. and she oh, was I like, make your bed in the morning. <laughs> like it's, you yeah. know, it's all these like uh, very practical tips. I think, um, I think you find that with cartoonists who are successful <sighs> is that there is this practical side that you kind of can't skip. Um, yeah. I don't know if you yeah. learn it in art school, but at some point in real life, you, it seems like that's a part. The only that thing I learned in art school, besides the fact that I hate art school, <laughs> was that you have to work long hours. That's what I that's what I learned. Uh, and, and you have to finish the project. But um, I, I my day is I start at 5 a.m. and I work until basically around one o'clock and somewhere and mostly in the morning I, I focus on writing. Um, that's, that's when that, you know, getting the, doing the little thumbnail sketches and getting the words, getting the panel pacing down and stuff. Uh, and then maybe, you know, around later on, I might take a break and have some co more coffee and do emails and go back to doing some other art related stuff. And then in Key West, around one o'clock, it's time to cannonball into the pool. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, talking about writing, I wonder if you had any any specific approaches to the way you build characters. You know, I, I feel like your characters are something that I personally connect to. And I'm the success of your comics suggests to me that characters are something that people are able to connect to. I, I, I don't know. Are there things that you think about consciously whenever you're working on building a character? I usually find that just working with them for a while that their personality starts to come out. I mean, it's less, I mean, you kind of start with a, uh, I do anyway, start with a basic idea like, Oh, sh you know, this character is a little excitable or this little character is cranky or whatever. Uh, but then as you start writing, um, nuances come out of the character that are not me connivingly creating them. They just kind of flow out. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's, that's the, I think, you know, when writers talk about like a character coming to life or telling them, you know, the, the, speaking for themselves or something, I think that's what they're referring to. I, I find that in my own experience, you know, that I've seen that happen where, in the beginning, you know, you're kind of a puppeteer, but hopefully as you start to see those characters more, they, they do tend to almost dictate what they're doing. I, like one I of my totally favorite parts of, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Is, of doing a scene is if I have several characters, you know, and I have characters in the background, it's very enjoyable for me to think, what are they doing right now? You know, like while the main action's happening, you know, what is this other character doing? And that's often where I start to see that character come to life. Um, yeah, that's, and that's my favorite part. And I've definitely seen it happen many times where the characters, well, you just get going and all of a sudden the character says something funny and you're like, Hey, you actually caught off guard. <laughs> you know, Hey, that's a good line. That's funny. I'm glad that the yeah. character said that. I think that stuff often shows too. I, I, I think I've, I've heard you talk about, you know, the cow race being something in, in bone that was a response almost to the way fans were responding to bone, that that wasn't something you had planned to be such a big event. Um, yeah. and yet it becomes like this kind of an iconic, you know, very memorable part of that story. 
And it seems like that may have been one of those moments that, that it, came to it was. And I, I think it became an, a, an iconic moment because the audience was pushing me toward it. And so that's what they, that's, it's, it's like fulfilled all the expectations, even though I didn't have the expectations, I found myself caught up in the tempest of it. And, uh, and thank God it worked because it was a really stupid idea. <laughs> oh boy, it's very well, alive. I, yeah. Well, well, that's something I don't know how to describe that, but that's something I am aware of all the time. Is that the comic has to feel like it's alive, that it comes alive, it, panel by panel, groups of panels, whole scenes. When it's reading. I don't really know if I have the vocabulary to describe this, but I know when you read it and the, the amount of time that you spend on the words feels like what the character's doing and the amount of time you spend on the panel and you get to the next panel and the whole thing feels like it's alive. It's, it's, it really starts to work. There's some alchemy happening. And uh, if it's not there, I can tell. And I can't let it go until what the characters say sounds real and the character's response is real and it just moves. It just goes. That's I, the, there. I don't, there's no, none of my comics go out until I feel like that they're alive like that. Wow. That's a hard thing to, uh, I, I imagine that's a hard thing to fix if it's not working. It feels like, um, you know, like it's almost one of those things that the more you attend to it, maybe the the harder it is to get that quality. You know what? I I, oh, I can't remember who said this to me, so I'm I won't, I'm not taking credit for it. But some cartoonist I was talking to, we were really talking about somebody was asking, or somehow got brought up about you know um, when you're drawing a blank. What do you call that? Um, when you have a dry patch. Uh, like a, a creative a writer's block. block, right? Yeah, like a creative block. Somebody said, "Go back to the last place where it was working. Don't keep fighting with uh, what you're doing. Just go back, and there'll be a point where it was working, and then it went off the rails. Go back there, and then throw away all the the stuff that wasn't working, and, and take off from there. And in some ways, it's the same way with this process I'm talking about, where suddenly it doesn't feel like it's quite alive." Uh, I go back to where it still did feel like it was alive and then go back forward again. Wow. I've never heard that before. That's, that sounds great. I know. I, 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 I'm going to try to remember who said that to me because I really thought that was, that really, that's, that was great advice. And I do it all the time. Just go right back to where it did work last. I had asked people if they had any questions. I, I posted on some of my social media that we were going to be talking and one thing a lot of people ask about are like tools and process. And I wonder how much of that is important to you. Um, you know, do you have tools that you swear by? You know, it's, it's got to be this brush or ink or paper or does it matter? Yes, it completely matters. I mean, it doesn't matter that anybody uses what somebody else uses, but it yeah. totally matters that you find your thing. Um, and for me, it is still, uh, you know, a, a sable hairbrush dipped in India ink and and drawn on a piece of paper i for some people it's you know is you get your cintiq out or your wacom tablet and you know they draw online um 
that's not for me at all and never will be. Do you do read comics on a screen? I do both. I read them on the screen. I, I prefer them as a book, but I read them on the screen because uh, I got a lot of comics. <laughs> I got a lot of books. I read books online now, too. You know? mm -hmm. My wife is a big reader, uh, and, and she reads on an iPad. And at one point, I had the book she wanted in print, and she was waiting on the digital copy to come available or something. And she did not want to read the print version while oh, she no. waited. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's, that's it's wild. A, that's it's, it's a it's, it's a funny. new world. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, another question that came up from a few people is uh, the status of Tuki. Are you any any updates on that or? Yeah, there is. Um, well, part of it, uh, it. I almost brought up Tuki earlier when we were talking about you know getting to know your characters. Because that's one of the things that happened with me. I was I started Tuki as an online comic, um, and I had this what I thought was a very clever idea of just putting up a, a big, um, you know, horizontal uh, page and treating it like it was a Prince Valiant page or a Flash yes. Gordon page, and just doing it like a big Sunday comic. And that was really fun, and it kind of worked when it was online. I thought it did anyway. But when I printed it later in a, you know, as a comic book, it was really clunky. Not just only because I printed the pages sideways, so you open it like a calendar, which everybody really hated. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the having it be like a one-off strip all the time really led to a real start and stop flow to the story it didn't really didn't have that thing i was talking about being really alive where you just kept going and it was alive you were very aware that at the end of each page it was it stopped so and the other thing was i got to know the kids i, I introduced these like young kids uh, that were kind of like lost and were hanging around tukey um and i got to know them and just from doing the comic, their little personalities came out. And at that point, I also started the Cartoon Crossroads Columbus Festival, which became four years of full-time work. Uh, that's all I worked on for four years. So I set Tukey aside and got CXC going off the ground with lots of help. But I mean, it required creating like a board of directors and, you know, uh, a, a partnership with each of the art uh, institutions in town, like the art museum and the library and the art colleges and stuff. Anyways, it was a huge undertaking. And that's all I did for four years. Well, last year I felt like the festival kind of had its legs. And we have a lot of, we have a full-time director with Tom Spurgeon and a lot of good people that are doing the work and they don't really need me full-time anymore. So this, for the, a year now, I've been reworking Tukey. I've been working on um, uh, a new children's book with, for Scholastic. I did a, a Smiley Bone picture book, which is coming out in July. Um, and, and like I told you earlier, Rassel's being repackages paperbacks and come out in three books this year too but with tukey i ha had all that time to think about the story and the kids 
And I went back and I changed, I'm rewriting Tukey. I'm probably going to use most of the art that I posted online. But for example, the first chapter, say, or the first issue is like 20 pages or something. It's now 45 pages. So what I did is all the, in between all those kind of standalone Sunday comics that I do with Tukey, I was able to add a page or two to make the flow work. Does that, do you understand what I'm yes. saying? And, uh, and I started it with the little kids. It starts with La, the, the oldest sister. That's where we start the story. Um, and so I've been working on it for a year and I have tons of new artwork. I'm going to start tweeting out little teases. Um, but when that's going to come out, I don't know. So the big update is that I am working on it again and I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm way into it. That's awesome. That excitement, I think, is such an important part of, I feel like you can sense that as a reader. I think so too. I mean, I can, when I'm reading it in somebody's stuff, I see it in street angel. You're kind of going crazy with like trying to figure out new ways to show motion and <laughs> do new things all the time. Some slightly, some manga stuff, but it's not, that's not what you're doing. You're not doing manga. You're making up shit. I love that. that yeah. I, I it's, it's such a fun project to do. I always wonder, you know, like I talk to lots of different cartoonists, you know, and I always think like these cartoonists that are doing heavier material, I can't imagine doing that, like filling my head with with some of the nonfiction stuff or something that's a little more journalistic sometimes. And I think, you know, like Street Angel is so much fun. It, it's kind of almost my happy place to go to, to do that, you know, and, and having a character who's basically fast, bouncing around, very kinetic, um, it makes it a lot uh, more enjoyable to sit down at the drawing table and, and, you know, try to figure out ways to illustrate that and run you with it. You do it with color sometimes. I saw one little spot where uh, Belle, uh, her her best friend, gets startled and then and she's like jumping, but there's like almost like a, like a residual image of her in like a in purple line where she was yes. standing before she got startled. <laughs> that I haven't not seen that done before. That's know, cool. Really. Yeah, I, I do a lot in color, a lot more now. You know, like I'll have notes in, in my scripts and in my writing that are color based, you know, and it's oh, really? several, you know, I'm, I'm several drafts away from actually drawing it, but it'll just be like, oh, this would make sense. Or, yeah, you know, I'm you, you're trying to picture this stuff in your head. And sometimes the color is the stuff that comes up first. You know? Oh, that's interesting. That's cool. It's, it's so, very okay, informative. So this is you know, a... Like the process change has changed so much since I started doing the work in color. Um, you mean for you or just our, what's available to us? Well, no, I mean like my creative process, you know, like I, I went from doing very traditional ink work, uh, you know, pen and brush kind of work to then starting to figure out how to do color and trying a lot of different color stuff. And then I moved to doing pencil art with color because I just thought the two interacted a little nicer, uh, you know, than like the flat blacks. And now, um, like I have, I'm doing images free comic book day book this year uh, called Street Angel's Dog. And I actually, uh, it reminds me of Tukey because it was the first Street Angel story I did for image. And mm -hmm. I've gotten a lot better and learned a lot. And so I completely redid the story, but I drew it all on an iPad. And so now you have this relationship of like some of it, I'm doing line work, some of it, I'm doing color first, you know, and it's wow. like this back and forth process. So 
yeah, it's uh, the color has become a bigger and bigger part, and it's it's pretty dramatic to me how much color has changed in comics just since oh, I've been yeah. making. You know, I guess oh, yeah. I'm starting with starting with image. <laughs> doesn't seem like that long. I remember when uh, okay, so when McFarlane and Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee and those guys left Marvel, they originally set up Image at Malibu Comics. Now, do you remember that? Yes. And uh, that was where they built their first um, teams of color, computer colorists, and that was that that was a game changer. That was just crazy what they were doing at Malibu with the Image Comics, and of course, then they eventually left Malibu and became their own freestanding thing and had all their colorists. Each each individual guy, Image guy, had his own little team and stuff. But I remember just watching that, and and it's so much better now. I mean, the the subtleties that are available to everybody now is just crazy. It's very fluid, you know. Where where one part of that, it, it's stranger and stranger to me that we keep the um like the assembly line approach of say a Marvel comic because it's so fluid. The drawing, the color, even the writing. It's I can't imagine breaking it up into too many teams. Do you ever think about, you know, writing comics for other people to draw or I don't know, drawing I've, I've other done a couple. stories? I've done a couple. Have you? Not not very much. Um, it's something I think about because, you know, that is something you see a lot in comics, uh, especially with artists that end up, you know, writing because it, it takes so long to draw. So if you have a bunch of these ideas, you almost have to, you know, <laughs> find an artist to work with. Um, so yeah. it's tempting, but I haven't done much myself. Well, I've, um, I've, there were projects that I was publishing, so it's not completely the same thing, but yeah, I wrote Rose for Charles Vest to, uh, to paint basically. And Tom Snagoski wrote the tall tales, big Johnson bone stories that I drew. So I've, I, I tried both things, but only once, although they were fairly large projects, they were like 200 pages each. <laughs> um, I ultimately, I'm not crazy about it. I mean, um, I liked writing for someone else better than have someone else write for me, which wasn't a knock on Tom Snagoski, who wrote a really funny story. But I have my way of keeping track of where the word balloons are and what you read them and stuff. And, you know, he's, he doesn't draw. He would like have somebody talk first in one panel, but then have the other person talk first in the other panel. Well, how do you, how do you, how you can't have the balloons crossing their tails. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, I found like I was constantly having to do extra work to make things like that work out to do, you know, little stage setting, uh, moving balloons to different panels and stuff. It was, felt like it was always harder, I thought, than when I'd write it for myself because I just automatically do it how I see it, you know? Right. Yeah, writing for someone else is something I, I, I do hope to try at some point because I think it'd be interesting just to see what comes back. You know, I'm, I'm sure... I, well, I, I don't know. You tell me, you know, how, how was... Like, Charles Vess, obviously... <laughs> You well, know, he's you know, Charles. Yes. What he, I was right. thrilled to death. It was absolutely thrilling. I mean, and and it, when when Tom Snagoski was giving me pages for Big Johnson Bone, they were hilarious. I was laughing my ass off. It was just 
a lot of work. <laughs> they were really, I was really pleased. But uh, and Tom Snigowski got the he got the bones humor perfectly. I mean, he just got that whole world, especially the rat creatures. And yeah, and Charles would get, send me pages, and they were these. He paints with those crazy Doc Martin inks. Wow. Like you can't paint with those. <laughs> you can't make a mistake. And you you have to you can't color over them. You have to make you have to do everything. It's astonishing to see his originals. And this was long whenever that was, like ninety-nine or something. We still had to send the originals, or he had to send the originals to us, and we had a scanner bed and we had to scan them. But so he was sending the originals through uh, FedEx. Boy, I'm not glad we don't do that anymore. Yeah, that was scary all the time. Sending your original art to <laughs> to Quebec. <laughs> In all those years, I only lost forty pages of bone. Oh, it's it was, heartbreaking uh, to hear that, though. That was heartbreaking. Forty pages. Yeah, I, wow. my memory was that the guy that we were working with got canned at the printer. And they actually went in and threw everything in his office out. And wow. then there were like f two issues of bone in there that they just threw out. I was like, I couldn't even believe it. I know a I guy who found Jack Kirby pages uh, in a dumpster. What? Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's exactly what you described. You know, it was like an, it was a small publisher or, or an old publisher or whatever. And at some point, you know, they were out of business and I guess there was art still in the offices and they just cleaned out the offices. Oh, my God. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully somebody found your pages. Um, I hope. I hope. Jeff, I have a question about, you know, will you put Tukey online again? Is What was your experience with that? Because that's something that I think is really exciting. You know, you think of distribution in the direct market, but like distribution is, you know, web comics is, is kind of this amazing new distro model you know, any reflections on that experience? And yeah, I mean, well, well, let me just say in case anybody doesn't know what Tukey was, it's a, it's a story that takes place 2 million years ago uh, when there were more, when there was more than one species of humans alive at the same time. You had Lucy, the Australopithecines, and you had Homo habilis and you had Homo erectus, which is our direct ancestor. Um, and only one survives and leaves Africa. And that's the story I'm telling is the guy who leaves Africa. Anyway, um, yeah, I wanted to try it as an online thing. I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't really know how to like get an online community going. And I see people, you know, like Kate Beaton, who you know talks to her audience and writes about stuff and keeps stuff going all the time just to keep, maybe she slowed down a little lately, but I mean, when she got real big, I just didn't have that particular skill i had it, it might be like when you were saying earlier that i i kind of enjoyed or was good at going to shows and giving talks and doing that kind of stuff kate had that and a lot of people have that when it comes to online i didn't have that so um i'm not going to go back to online i i couldn't figure out how to make money at it <laughs> so i'm when i come back with tukey it will be as graphic novel Mm -hmm. be. I'm taking the, in fact, I'm taking, like I said earlier, the hundred pages or so that I did put up online and I'm reworking them for the graphic novel. Yeah. Um, do you, have you tried it? Have you tried doing, you know, I have, to... um, 
you know, and it's 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 been mixed results. Certainly, I'm, <laughs> I have not had Kate beaten like online success. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's just I, I find it exciting, and you know, I want to engage more with that, uh, just because I see it as this is a distro model, and I'm always interested in how influential distribution is to content. You know, like like we talked about the Hernandez brothers earlier, and I always think of them as being the poster children for the direct market. You know, in in the distribution model of the direct market enabled yeah. what they do. Uh, you know, to to be more specialized and to tell these stories that are have a devout following, but very different than something like Batman or something that's, yeah, you know, so. And they were different from the underground that went before them. I think the Hernandez brothers are an incredibly important uh, piece in that evolution because before that it was the 70s, the 60s and 70s, which was all, Scott McCloud put it like this, they were revolutionaries. You know, they were fighting the man. They were doing sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and just trying to do anything that they weren't supposed to do. That the next group, which I think really starts most purely with Love and Rockets, is a group who now has that freedom, but uses it to tell their own stories like authors. Right. And I and I I I think Hernandez brothers are so important to that that growth. Yeah, I I sometimes think of them almost as like uh, like Jack Kirby would have been to superhero comics and language, the Hernandez brothers are to where we are today. Yeah, you know, with with more character driven, personal. Uh, I don't want to say realistic stories because I don't think that fully describes it. But you know they they sort of open the door to this whole other language of comics and well it's that's it's the comics that it's their voice and they're telling uh and they're and they're creating art basically yeah right hey man well uh I don't know how long we were thinking about talking but uh yes I think, we, I think we've done pretty good here I agree it's uh it's great to catch up with you Jeff um always a pleasure talking with you. Now, you know, Pittsburgh's only like three hours away from Colo. We should get together. Yes, we should. <laughs> Columbus is such a great comics town. Any excuse <laughs> to go there is is a good one. So, yeah, definitely. And Pittsburgh is, I think Pittsburgh's a pretty hip town, too. So we'll, we'll have to take turns. Yes, by all means. Let me know whenever you're, anytime you want to come visit. Yeah, absolutely. Very good talking to you, Jim. So a huge thanks to Jim and Jeff and to parents for providing the music. Check back here in March for another episode of Mirror Image.